Thank you, brother, and thank you for that warm introduction, except for the part about the best coast. It is a wonderful coast, but I'm not sure if it's the best coast yet. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, well, it is a, a privilege to be with you. Um, I, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. I want to read a passage of Scripture and then pray for us and then uh, walk us through some considerations together this morning. The passage is Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, going through chapter 4, verse 1. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Colossians three seventeen. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time of learning and consideration. Uh, we pray that even as we reflect on a period of time in the history of uh, the church of Jesus Christ, that you would uh, encourage our hearts, help us to um, not only be encouraged, but that we may consider uh, your truth. And we pray that even the testimony and the work of those who've gone before us uh, might bring uh, encouragement this day, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Sam has said, I was able to spend probably somewhere between six and a half to eight years, depending on how you, you know, consider the time of work, looking at the early church, and particularly the first two centuries of the Christian movement. So that would be roughly to about 200. And the only reason to date that that way is just because when you write a dissertation, you want to limit what you have to read. <laughs> and so it was, let's do the first 200 years. But there was um, also the desire to consider part of the movement of the early church that existed prior to some of the doctrinal developments that would come um, in the third and fourth centuries. And so really what I endeavored to do was answer the question, how did the early Christians counsel and care and treat and teach the Christian family? Now I read Colossians 3:17 and following because it is an example of several family or household codes in the scriptures. We see examples of this in Colossians Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, 
or even discussion that is similar in 1 Peter. But we have examples of writings just like this all over the Christian literature that would come just following the New Testament. There is a group of works, a group of letters, sermons, writings, manuals that have been given the name the Apostolic Fathers. Perhaps you've heard of that corpus or that body of literature. Well, it's not spirit-inspired scripture, but it is informative for us. And in that body of literature, there are examples, many of examples, that almost look exactly like what I just read to you from Colossians chapter 3 and 4, household codes. So what I want to do is take just a few minutes and give you a few terms that would have been used uh, in that period of time, and then I want us to reflect together as brothers and sisters in Christ on how the early Christian movement, or we could say the early church, used those same concepts, but for a very different purpose. Family is of great importance all throughout the scripture. You can think of the institution of the family in the book of Genesis, and you can think of teaching of the family all the way to the very end of scripture. But family was something that was very important to the early pastors and teachers of the Christian movement. Let me give you a couple of words. I will write them on the board in case, um, I, I don't know how good my penmanship is, but I'll write them on the board in case you, you want to just see how they're spelled. Some of them are really kind of English versions of Greek or Latin words, but I'll write them, and then we'll talk about how some of these words were later used in the first two centuries of the Christian movement. The first... Some of you may recognize this word because there, I believe, is a Greek yogurt that shares the name. <clears throat> and if you're like me, Greek yogurt is something that you uh, partake uh, of. And so oikos is a word that primarily describes the family, but it really, it really had in, in the early Christian movement and beyond the Christian movement, the idea of a household. Let me give you some Statistics may be helpful, may be boring to you, but the word oikos is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Now, if you think about how uh, large the New Testament is, in one sense, okay, that's not that big of a deal, but in another sense, that's a lot of times for the word oikos to, to be used. And it predominantly relates to the house or the household, or variations of it appear, for instance, in Mark 10. Luke 10, Acts 10, and in 60 of the uses of that word, it refers to a house or a home, and 12 times, and I don't expect you to remember all these numbers when we're finished, but in 12 different instances, it speaks to a family or a group of people. Now think about that. In one sense, that is what a family is. It's a group of individuals, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But it signifies a unit of persons working and living together. And in the early Greco-Roman period, so we think about family today, usually we think of a mother, a father, uh, perhaps children, biological children or adopted children. Sometimes that may involve us considering other members that might be in the household, grandparents. But in the early Christian period of time, in the first and second century, the oikos hardly ever was just parents and children. 
it usually was several what we would consider families that were kind of brought together under one individual, and we'll mention who he would have been in just a moment. But these are individuals. A household was in Paul's day, in Peter's day, in the larger Gentile Greco-Roman Empire. It would have been people like parents, children, servants or slaves, all working together for a particular purpose. And that was ultimately to serve the purposes of the head of the household. Now, within the Latin language, a similarity occurs, and you get two other words. One of them is domus, but the other word you're definitely going to recognize. Uh, it's a Latin word, but it's familia, and that's where we would ultimately derive our word family from. But just keep in mind as we go along that family wasn't just mom and dad and children. Family was head of the household, um, wife, or in some cases, various women, children, slaves, and slave children. This would have been part of the Greco-Roman oikos. So when we see early Christian writers addressing slaves, there's a reason for that. Part of the reason is because, well, it's spirit-inspired scripture that the Holy Spirit wanted to be written, but there's also the reality that as these various epistles were written, household instruction would involve slaves because most houses would have had slaves. Well, let's then consider a couple of other elements. I mentioned to you the oikos, the familia, they're different words, but we'll use them together. There would have been the head of the household, the head of the household would have been called the potter familias. And again, my apologies for my bad penmanship, but it is what it is, and I'm in my 40s now, so I'm not sure that it's going to be able to change. But that's one word, potter familias. The Roman familia was made up of all of these individuals, one Latin dictionary describes it this way, quote, all persons subject to the control of one man, paterfamilias, whether relations, free men, or slaves, a household. That was the Roman familia. And the paterfamilias was the individual who would have been considered the head of the household. Now, in the first and second century, 99% of the time, that individual would have been male. It would have been a man. There is some research that as the Roman Empire moved into the next few centuries, that there may be some examples of women acting in the role of a paterfamilias. But usually a man, and the paterfamilias served uh, the larger Greco-Roman state and his household was really designed to serve the purposes of Rome. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The paterfamilias had great power. And one of the rather sad episodes is that the paterfamilias had what was called patria potestas. Now think about Paul, Peter, James, and John writing to various believers outside of Jerusalem. 
because in Jerusalem there would have been sort of an agreement between Rome and the, the, the Jews, and so Jerusalem would have involved this, but we're talking about places like Corinth, um, Thessalonica, other kinds of, of places. The paterfamilias had a power known as patria potestas, father power. And this could even include the authority of life or death over anyone else in his household. Now, perhaps if you've done any reading in the early Christian movement, you may have uh, heard mention of that famous letter where a Roman soldier writes to his wife, and he is away, he's on a battlefield somewhere, and he's writing to her, and I guess prior to him leaving, she was with child, and so he's writing, you know, and there is, in essence, words of kindness and affection, words of love, and he asks about the baby, and he says, operating under his patria potestas, he says, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, expose it. Now, exposing a child comes from uh, a practice known as expositio. Think about pastoring in a world where families were not according to the biblical design, where children could be murdered by parents. Now, in one sense, we are there, are we not? But in another sense, it would have been very palpable. It would have been very uh, visible to Christians. And we'll talk about some of their writings in just a minute after I give you this background. But expositio was basically if a child was born and the potter familias did not want to keep the child, the child was just taken out off into a trash dump and left. We do have records, it seems, that the early Christians would go to such places and adopt these children. But this Roman soldier, when he says, expose it, he's essentially saying, if it's a girl, we don't want it in our household. Uh, we don't know why. Uh, in his instance, maybe they had already had a daughter. Uh, women were obviously uh, much lower on the status uh, of, you know, the system of status, and so perhaps he didn't want that, and perhaps they couldn't care for uh, certain mouths, he thought. But this was the patria potestas. Now, in Rome over these centuries, so first, second, and third century, a variety of laws would ultimately be passed that would make this uh, process of expositio uh, to, to essentially be outlawed. But think about that. You have been, uh, as a people group, conquered by the Roman Empire. They've come in, and they've said to your people, if you follow our ways and our customs and adopt our gods, we'll let you live, and we will let you be slaves in Roman households. In fact, you will be Roman. And in some sense, slavery is difficult for us to think about because in the United States, we have the, the history of chattel slavery in, in the 1617 and 1800s, and as horrible as slavery was in the Greco-Roman Empire, as we'll see in just a few moments, there was also the opportunity for privilege and advancement if you did well, something that usually didn't occur in the, you know, the colonies um, that would become the United States. So think about your people group being conquered, and now many of you are made slaves, uh, existing marital relationships that may happen have been ripped apart, 
children uh, may be sold to a variety of individuals, and now you are under the paterfamilias as a servant. And you are under his patria potestas. You have the ability ultimately to be put to death at, at his will. Your biological children, if you have them, are not really yours legally. If you are a slave and you get married, maybe you have come to, to find Christ, you've heard the gospel. We know that, that Christianity spread like wildfire among the slave populations in the first two or three centuries A.D. You are now before the Lord married to another woman in the household. She is your wife, but the Roman Empire does not recognize marriages among slaves in the same way. So at any moment, your wife or husband and your children could be put to death or sold to someone else. Imagine if you are not only facing that, but you are an elder in the Reformed Baptist Church of Corinth, right? How are you going to shepherd people who are constantly facing this potential reality? It's, it's, an, it's indeed a, a very challenging thing to consider. So when we hear Paul writing to the Colossians, giving them a variety of instructions, now think about the weight, okay? If you, if you add to it Ephesians, children are addressed, Wives are addressed, husbands are addressed, but even masters. Of course, we know about uh, Paul's letter we, we call Philemon. There, there is this weight of instruction that when we start to see what the empire was like back then, it, it gives us a richness. Now, let me, let me say one thing. I don't think we need to study all of the context of a culture in order to receive the word of God as the scripture that it is, right? So you, you may never know any of these things and be able to benefit immensely from the word of God from Colossians. It's just that as I spent six to eight years thinking about the family unit in the Greco-Roman Empire, there, there was this uh, almost increasing appreciation for the kinds of things that were occurring uh, in this period of time. A couple more words, and then I want to talk to you about how the early Christians seem to utilize these constructs for a very different purpose. Another term would be pietas. Anybody know what English word we might get from pietas? Piety, right? Well, pietas, uh, here's the Oxford Latin Dictionary better than I would define it, so I'll just give it to you. Quote, an attitude of dutiful respect towards those to whom one is bound by ties of religion, consanguinity, etc. So it is, it is essentially a, a, a position of dutiful respect. It is particularly because of the focus of the family in the Roman uh, empire that this word becomes important because this particular value was considered a virtue. If you were a member under the paterfamilias, your life was to be a life of virtue. Virtue was considered in this way in the Greco-Roman Empire. You serve the purposes of the household and the household gods with devotion. Remember, we're in a polytheistic system at this point. 
And so piety or pietas influenced much of the Greco-Roman household. Can I give, may I give you one or two more words? Is this too many words so far? Okay. The next word would be paideia. You may have heard this word if you've researched any kind of educational uh, methodologies or those kinds of things. But the word paideia is a word that in Greek goes all the way back to the time of Plato. Okay? So hundreds of years before the birth of our Savior. And paideia really is, for lack of a, a long definition, it's really a system of education. Okay? So within the paterfamilias, you have these rather unfortunate realities. But you, you do have a family pietas, family piety, and then you have a system of educating individuals. Um, and this was a reality even within the Christian stream of the first two centuries. Um, and the term is used in a variety of ways. It's even used in Scripture. So, for instance, uh, we could think of the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament. There's, there's use of this word, Psalm 117, 18, uh, Jeremiah 6, 7 through 8. But in the New Testament, you can see this in, for instance, Ephesians 6, verse 4. Turn to Ephesians 6, verse 4. And, and whatever English translation you're using, you, you won't see this, this word as written on the board, but you'll be very familiar with this passage. And this is going to be one example. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this is one example of where I'm going to make the argument that the early Christians didn't spend all of their time trying to drastically change the cultural norms, although that did happen. But what they did was they faithfully lived for Christ even in the context of the norms of their day. So, for instance, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This training and admonition connects to this larger concept of paideia, which these early Greco-Roman citizens would have been aware of. So what do we have so far? We have house, household, unit of individuals. We want to use another phrase in Latin, familia. We recognize that, but just keep in mind, it's not just mom and dad and children. It also involves slaves and perhaps other individuals. In some cases, it may involve concubines. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the household was to have a particular kind of piety, respect, service, duty, ultimately to the paterfamilias, but really to serve the purposes of the kingdom of Rome. Now, keep that in mind. Families being designed ultimately to serve the purposes of another kingdom. I think you might know where I'm going to go with this. This pietas involved an education of members of the family. Paul uses an example of this in Galatians, where it's almost as if he's using terms that would have been used in the Greco-Roman household. Because sometimes, I told you slaves could rise to a certain level, Sometimes slaves, trusted slaves, were put in charge of the education of the children, the paideia of the children. 
In fact, a trusted slave would have been, in some sense, a pedagogue, a teacher of children, a guide or guard of children. And that individual's job was to make sure that the slave children, but also the freeborn children, were educated. Think about that. You now are in a world where children are of different status. They're being educated together, and they know, even as they play ball together after school, they know that one of them is not equal to the other, and yet they're growing up learning together. Um, and slaves, in many cases, would have been very educated. Um, so we have the head of the family, we have the power of the head of the family to include this particular kind of very sad uh, practice. Okay, one other statement that we need to make, and then we're going to talk about some early Christian literature. What about marriage, divorce, and sexuality? You know, we live in a day where um, it's, it's very common to hear individuals say, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, we, you know, we have sought to redefine marriage as a culture. Uh, people are wrestling with a whole lot of issues in our culture. They seem to be blatantly living against the commands and designs of God as it relates to marriage and family. As I spent quite a while studying marriage and family and sexuality in the first and second century Greco-Roman world, I have to tell you, in some sense, it was worse then than it is now. And here's what I mean. Um, and I'll, I'll spare you all of the details, but the paterfamilias did not in any way have to be faithful to his wife. It was assumed that men were not going to be faithful to their wife. You could only have one legal wife at a time, and again, first, second century, Rome. Okay. But that in no way prohibited you from committing adultery. In fact, I'm not even sure that it would have always been considered adultery. It would have been considered something that was assumed. And men often would have expressed their uh, sexual practices with women and men. And, and that's something that, it, you know, today the world says, well, this is your identity. In, in Rome, it wouldn't have been tied to identity. It would have just been a normal practice. And one other thing, just to spare us some of the, the details, slaves were often used for these purposes. Male slaves, female slaves, and even children. So in one sense... By the time you get to the 200s in Rome, there is a blatant immorality that is rampant. Okay? Uh, let me give you one scholar, the last name is Tregiari, writes this, quote, the vital point about divorce is that no public authority had to ratify it. The theory that unites Roman thinking about marriage and divorce is that both are free, a principle continued into modern law. In theory, no one could be compelled to marry, he or she could make a legal Roman marriage with any legally eligible person. No one could be compelled to remain married against his or her will. No one could be compelled to divorce. The marriage lasts as long as both continue to consent. If one withdraws, there is a divorce. So divorce was rampant. We think that we live in a day where divorce rates are skyrocketing, but in Rome there would have been uh, a very high level of divorce. So we now get to some interesting biblical discussions, don't we? This background helps us perhaps to consider even a little bit more the context of certain passages. For instance, Paul writing to the Corinthians. While it might have been legally easy to divorce, the Apostle Paul declares it to be problematic, to say the least, 1 Corinthians 7. 
given the ultimate relationship that marriage typifies, Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. Practically, when a divorce occurred, any children of the marriage, although they may live with their mother, remained under the legal responsibility, the patria potestas, of the father. Think about that. The blame of the divorce usually rested with the guilty party, someone committed adultery, for instance, or rested with the person who ended the marriage when their partner was found guilty of a fault. So, we think about a variety of practices in this day, and we are taken, for instance, to some secular writing. Here is Cicero. Have you heard the name Cicero before? Here's what Cicero writes. And brothers and sisters, some of these ideas are difficult for us to think about, but just just think about the level to which society was uh, during Cicero's day. He says this, quote, is there anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs even with courtesans? He is doubtless eminently austere, but his view is contrary not only to the license of this age, this is, you know, 2,100 years ago, the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, was it that what is allowed was not allowed? You are being austere if you don't assume that youth older children and teenagers and young adults, are going to have affairs. Sexual promiscuity among males within the first and second century Greco-Roman Empire was assumed. It was just assumed. And in fact, sadly, it was also part of a practice of coming to age. Slaves were often, as I mentioned, used for these purposes, and this is important. Um, One of the things that we realize when we dive into the literature is that it was the Christians who stood alone for a period of time against what we would call pedophilia or the use of children for sexual immorality. Larry Hurtado, the uh, early Christian scholar who just passed away within the last uh, five to seven years, says this, in Christian texts from the second century onward, the person who engages in sex with children is called a child corrupter or abuser. And there is the prohibition, do not corrupt or abuse children. And he goes on to say that the Christians actually invented a word. In their literature, there was a word that Christians invented to say, we don't corrupt children. Now, if you go past the second century into the third and fourth and fifth century, the sexual practices and uh, other kinds of moral practices that were happening in society changed, and it was because of the Christians. Just because of the Christians. But in the first 200 years of the Christian movement, Christians were writing in their literature some very interesting things. And I want to give you some examples. Of course, we have the New Testament. But in some of the writings, uh, like, for instance, in the Epistle of Barnabas or the Didache. Anybody heard of the Didache? Yeah. You have Christians essentially making up words to say, this is not what we do. This is a part of our Christian family over the last 2,000 years. We don't do this with our children, with our slaves. Let me give you a couple of examples now. We think about these words, oikos, pietas, paideia, paterfamilias. In one sense, you might think that the Christians decided, here's what we're going to do. We are going to go on a cultural rampage, and we're going to change culture. Or we're going to uh, make it our job to 
get certain individuals elected who are going to outlaw these things. And I'm not saying that that's always wrong in every instance. But as you read the literature of the first 200 years, over and over and over again, the common theme is, Christians, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. And interestingly enough, it seems as more and more and more of those Christian families were doing those things, things in the broader culture began to change. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is from probably one of the earliest letters we have outside of the New Testament. It's a letter entitled First Clement. Um, and there it, it reads this way. Let us set our wives on the straight path toward the good. Let them demonstrate the habit of purity worthy of love. Let them display the innocent will of their gentleness. Let them make evident the gentleness of their speech by their silence. Let them give their love devoutly, not according to partiality, but equally to all who fear God. Now, there are some overtones there to certain New Testament passages. But I would argue, and I'll give you a couple of other instances, now you start to see Christians saying, if you're a Christian paterfamilias, use your authority differently. Use it in such a way that now you're instructing, through paideia, the members of your household to include your wife in the path of godliness. Here's a passage from the Didache. Do not remove your hand from your son or daughter, but from their youth teach them the reverential fear of God. Do not give orders to your male slave or female slave who hope in the same God out of bitterness, lest they stop fearing the God who is over you both. For he does not come to call those of high status, but those whom the Spirit has prepared. I'd love to dive into that, but we'll keep moving. <laughs> and you who are slaves must be subject to your masters as to a replica of God with respect and reverential fear. You've heard twice that phrase, reverential fear. It's everywhere in the first and second century post-New Testament documents. It's everywhere. That the head of the household is as a follower of Christ, to train the members in his household or to see to it that they are trained in a reverence or respect for God. What does that sound like? There is something that your household is to have piety for. No longer is your familial pietas the gods of your town or your city. You are to use what power you have or very different pietas, right? Well, one or two other examples. This is Ignatius. Maybe you've heard of Ignatius. He writes a letter to Polycarp. He says this, Tell my sisters to love the Lord and to be content with their husbands in flesh and in spirit. In the same way also, command my brothers in the name of Jesus Christ to love their wives like the Lord loved the church. What does that sound like? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's Ephesians. That's just Paul in Ephesians, isn't it? Well, we also get some writings where the early Christians are telling uh, the, the listeners of these letters, of these epistles, how we're to be. Listen to this. This is the epistle, the epistle excuse me, of Barnabas. Again, this is a value for us historically. We're not in any way saying that these are on par with, uh, with Scripture but it's helpful for us. Barnabas would have been early 2nd century, in, in my opinion. So here, here's what it says. Do not engage in sexual immorality. Do not commit adultery. 
do not engage in pederasty. That's the that's, uh, sexual use of children. The word of God must not go out from you to any who are impure. And then this is interesting. Do not abort a fetus or kill a child that is already born. Many of us in our day think that abortion is a Roe v. Wade issue. It started in the 70s. In fact, you'll hear some individuals try to make the argument that it really wasn't until the religious right, you know, the Reagan generation of the 80s, that people who were Christians were anti-abortion. Have you ever heard that argument? The early church in the second century, we as Christians do not abort our children. That was a practice that was rampant, by the way. Uh, and in many cases probably would have gone horribly wrong for the mother. But listen, do not remove your hand from your son or daughter, but from their youth teach them the reverential fear of God. Here's a, a, a letter, the epistle to Diognetus, describing Christians. Here's how our family, 18 to 1900 years ago, was described in one, two sentences. Quote, they marry like everyone, they bear children, but they do not expose their offspring. You remember that word, expositio? They do not expose their offspring. They set a common table, but not a common bed. Now think about that. It was very common in that day for, well, the bedroom to be used for anyone and everyone. But here the Christians are described as they open their tables to everyone, but not their beds. Aristides writing to Hadrian in the early part of the second century. Maybe you've heard of Hadrian. Maybe Hadrian's Wall, right, in the broader UK area that we call it today. Aristides writing to Hadrian in the early part of the second century seeks to give an apology for the Christian faith. First, by discussing the God of Christianity in his apology, and then giving characteristics of the followers of the early Christian movement. Here's his description, right? He addresses familial aspects, particularly with the idea of the Christian sexual ethic. And this apologetic work includes a description of the Christian sexual ethic with clear familial connections. Right? He speaks to the incompatibility of false gods. One of the things that he does is he says, the, 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 the false gods of Rome, the, the polytheistic system, they can't truly be gods. And do you know why he says they can't truly be gods? Because they practice fornication, adultery, or homosexuality. And he calls that into question. Now, he's writing to Hadrian. How about this one? Justin Martyr. But as for us, we have been taught, a paideia has been given. We have been taught that to expose newly born children is a part of wicked men. And this we have been taught, lest we should do anyone an injury, and lest we should sin against God. First, because we see that almost all so exposed, not only the girls, but also the males, are brought up in prostitution. Think about that. You, you, you leave infants out in the trash heap. Many of them will survive, not all of them. Some of them will be picked up. And it wasn't just the Christians that were going to go get them and adopt them. It was others who had financial goals in mind. These are going to be my slaves. I'm going to sell these individuals. 
Well, how did the early Christians, as we bring this to a close, use these concepts? I don't think we find in any of the literature a Christian writing saying, we're going to use the oikos, familia, pietas, paideia, pater familias, patria, potestas, for the glory of the king, King Jesus. But I would argue that they sort of did that. Let's just lay out a couple of passages of Scripture for a moment. What was startling to me is that as I read the early Christian documents, do you know where they go time and time again for counsel? They go to the Scriptures. They, they go to the Scriptures. In fact, if you just lay all this out, I have it here in my notes. I can't lay it all out for you, but I just I start listing passages. And similar words are used. Um, in Colossians 3, we heard that read a moment ago, and in Ephesians 6... You have two passages on children. Remember that? The Ephesians 6 passage reads this way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And then fathers are told to not provoke their children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you lay out other writings from the 100s, First Clement, Didache, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, the epistle of Barnabas. It's almost exactly the same. And in every one, there is a focus on obedient children being trained in a God-centered way. There is a new pietas. Our family, even if I'm not the paterfamilias, but I'm a slave who could be sold at any point, our new pietas is a different kingdom. It's a different kingdom. We're not serving the, the God of Rome. We're not serving the emperor. We, we will sub submit to him insofar as we can. We will honor the civil magistrate, but our king is, if you will, much greater than Caesar. Notice the God-centered focus and use of Scripture. I wish I could read all of those instances. Let me just give you uh, one, Polycarp to the Philippians, quote, instruct their children with instruction of the fear of God. Paideia, 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 with a different pietas. Well, if we had time, I would walk you through how the early Christians seemed to focus on the Christian family versus changing the culture. Not that they weren't concerned about the larger culture, but that the focus of the early Christian movement was... We're going we're gonna to train those that the Lord has placed in our home, under our care, in a different way. And it would have been drastically different. It, it would have been drastically different. Can you imagine? This is what we don't do. It would come sometimes with great sacrifice. Um, for instance, in the early Christian writings, and, and some more liberal scholars love to poke at Christianity for this, but in the early Christian writings after the New Testament, th there's not a call for slavery to end. Why not? Wouldn't we want that to end? I, I think the early Christians would have, but instead, what do they do in their writings? It's less about petitioning the culture and more about, if you are a master, here's how you serve Christ with how you treat your slaves. If you are a slave, here's how you serve Christ with how you honor your master. For instance, Ignatius to Polycarp. Do not treat male or female slaves arrogantly, but do not puff them up either. 
Instead, let them serve even more to the glory of God, that they may experience a better freedom from God. Let them not desire to be set free at the church's expense, that they may not be disclosed as slaves of lust. Not so much sexual lust there, but something, a passion, a desire getting in the way of serving God in his or her station. Same thing with the Didache, chapter 4. So, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that as I spent time diving into all of this work, I was absolutely encouraged by what I saw. Now, a lot of it's academic stuff and footnotes and years of change this, do this. You know how that goes. Your pastor has been through that. But I was encouraged because what I saw was a reliance on the apostolic teaching. It wasn't original. Over and over and over again, it was almost as if these later writers were just quoting Paul or Peter. But there was also in family council a very God-centered pietas, a very God-centered focus that it almost was secondly about changing circumstances, but firstly about living before God, but in a way that Rome knew not of. Um, I would also say that there was a different goal. We, We use the word telos or purpose, but the family council of the first and second century within the Christian community was shaped by, I'll I'll use that big word that many of us love, eschatological reality. But what is to come shaped how you do family now versus the temporal aspects of human relationships. And as such, it shouldn't surprise us that it was given within the typical relational structures of the culture and focused on the character of the Christian family without a call to change those larger relational structures. Now, I don't think that what we should do is we should say that the Christians were content that slavery existed in the Greco-Roman Empire. Or that the Christians were content as long as Christians didn't murder children. But what you see is that in an empire where Christians went very quickly from being sort of this strange sect of the Jews in Jerusalem to a movement known as the way that spread like wildfire, the Christians were seeking to live faithfully. Now, that doesn't mean that we know what every Christian household was like. We certainly have examples that are troubling. I quoted to you from 1 Clement. If you've ever read 1 Clement, it seems as if the church in Corinth was in disarray within a generation to a generation and a half after Paul. They had kicked out their elders, and it was a mess. So I don't mean in any way to present that the early church was the golden age, that they had everything right, but rather they were seeking, even though failing, to use familial structures for the glory of God. And we can actually look and say, if we want to use modern terms, yes, they were pro-family. Yes, they were pro-life. Yes, they were for raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord we can look and see that they did this within the concepts and constructs that existed. The last thing that I will say, I mentioned that I was encouraged uh, 
But I was also challenged because as a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church on the second best coast, we face challenges and we face trials and there are struggles. And then I began to reflect sometimes if I could lift my head above my footnotes and all of that to think through what would it have been like to be a pastor in, say, 150 A.D., in a Greco-Roman city where there would have been persecution, there would have been the selling of people in my own congregation. I mean, we gather on the Lord's Day, and the next Lord's Day, someone or their child is not there. Who is sufficient for these things? And yet, we know that because of the faithfulness of our God, the Christian movement wasn't stamped out. But generations of slave children were raised. Many of them became pastors and elders of churches. They were all, as we'll say, traumatized by what they saw in the world around them. And yet, like the teenage boy Germanicus, in one of the letters of the Apostolic Fathers, in many cases, they went to the lions. They went to the lions because they were raised, and we don't even know how in Germanicus's case, they were raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with a pietas that caused their eyes to be lifted higher than just their household but for the respect and reverence of a different king. I was encouraged by that. I was encouraged by that. So thank you for letting me kind of share, I don't know, six to eight years of terms and all of what that looked like. Um, I only scratched the surface. Uh, hopefully this was um, of interest to you, but I would say it was definitely of, of interest to me to consider all of these things and then to kind of blend that together with the kinds of things that we have to think about today. Uh, so thank you.